Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Liz Moody Podcast. I'm your host, Liz Moody, and I'm a best-selling author and longtime journalist. This podcast is all about helping you live your healthiest, happiest life, whether we're learning how to become a winning conversationalist, diving deep into the circadian rhythm and how it impacts your whole body health, or discovering how to tap into the innate creativity that we all have. And yes, those are all real episodes, so if any of those topics sound good to you, scroll on back in the archives. Today, I am so excited to welcome Dr. Jade Wu to the podcast. Dr. Wu is a board-certified sleep psychologist, researcher, and speaker. She completed her PhD at Boston University and her medical psychology residency and clinical fellowship at Duke University School of Medicine, which is where she currently practices. She is a frequent guest on popular TV and radio shows such as NPR and ABC News, and she's a contributor to publications including BBC News, Huffington Post, and Women's Health, and she recently published the brilliant book, Hello Sleep, The Science and Art of Overcoming Insomnia Without Medications. I want to start off by saying explicitly, because this was so important to me when I was sleeping poorly, that this is not an episode that will make you feel like you're going to have all of these catastrophic impacts if you're not sleeping well. There are so many podcasts and books out there that are trying to emphasize the importance of sleep, which is great, but they do that by making you feel like you're going to die, you're going to get dementia, all of these terrifying things if you aren't sleeping well, which for me at least created stress around sleep that ironically made me sleep way worse. So right off the bat, we get into some really interesting science behind why you shouldn't freak out at all if you're not sleeping well. This is not an episode that's going to scare you. I found it incredibly comforting on a number of different levels, and it gave me so many tools to help my sleep without stressing me out about it. In this episode, we get into the key difference between tiredness and sleepiness and what to do about both, what your sleep drive is and why it matters, the best daily and nightly routines for optimal sleep, how to not feel groggy when you wake up, why you wake up in the middle of the night and exactly what to do when it happens, sneaky culprits that are messing with your sleep, the one thing to do during the day to counteract being on your phone at night, busting myths about nighttime exercise, sleep cycles, early bedtime is meaning more deep sleep, and so much more. As always, we would both love to hear your thoughts as you're listening, so definitely screenshot and tag us on Instagram. I am at Liz Moody, and Jade is at Dr. underscore Jade underscore Woo. And if at any point when you're listening, you're like, wow, my friend or my mom or my dad or my sister needs to hear this, please send them a link. There is so much amazing, helpful information in this episode, and sharing is the best way to support the podcast. As a quick final note, I love seeing all of your Instagram stories about 100 Ways to Change Your Life, and it makes me so, so happy to see how much you all are loving it and all of the ways that you're changing your lives. If you are loving it, I would really appreciate a quick review on Amazon or Goodreads. It is one of the best ways to spread the book to new readers, especially if they're not already listeners of the podcast, and it truly only takes five minutes. Okay, let's get right into it with Dr. Jade Wu. Jade, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. I was just telling you off air, I'm such a huge fan of your book. Thanks so much. That means a lot to me. 
Okay, so I want to start off. When I was dealing with insomnia, I used to be so anxious to listen to podcasts about sleep because they mostly made me feel like all of these bad things were going to happen to me since I wasn't sleeping well. So I would love to start this podcast with a message of reassurance for people who don't sleep well and might be freaking out. Are they really doing that much damage? And is there hope for their sleeping ability to change? I'll answer your second question first, which is absolutely yes. I've worked with hundreds of people who started out taking multiple sleep medications and were really, really unhappy with their sleep. And then they turned it around. And even after having experienced trauma, having experienced cancer and surgery and multiple kids, you know, all these things mess up your sleep, but you can get back on track. So that's the main message of hope. And the other message of reassurance to answer your first question is, Just because you have insomnia or don't sleep well does not necessarily mean you're sleep deprived and you're going to die early. So you've probably heard you'll get cancer, you'll get heart disease, you'll die early, you won't be sexy or funny or smart if you (laughs) don't sleep well. Usually that message is coming from the research world of sleep deprivation, which is not the same thing as insomnia. So sleep deprivation is when there's an external force that's keeping you from having the opportunity to sleep. Whereas insomnia is you have plenty of opportunity to sleep, nothing really stopping you, but your body is just saying like, no, not right now. So these two, it seems like we're splitting hairs, but actually they're really, really different. And another way to think about it is like this. If you're sleep deprived, you're going to be very, very, very sleepy. And if you're very, very, very sleepy, you're not going to have insomnia. So just the fact of having insomnia, especially long-term insomnia, is probably a good sign that you're not very sleep-deprived. So hopefully that helps. Is the idea that if you were truly sleep-deprived, your body would find a way to sleep? So if you were experiencing those detrimental health effects we always hear about, that likely your body would find a way to sleep if you are indeed trying to sleep? Yes, exactly. So the most extreme example, you know, people always say to me is, I have so much insomnia. It's like I'm one of those prisoners of war. Like people are torturing me. It's like against the Geneva Convention. And I really feel for them. It really does feel like torture. But when people are actually tortured with sleep deprivation, they're like trying to fall asleep. Their body is trying to fall asleep, even with loud noises playing. And like they're standing on a block of ice and they're very uncomfortable and they're still falling asleep. Because sleep is such a fundamental biological need and drive that your brain is always trying to get back to it if you're not getting enough. So one big message I have for folks who are not sleeping well is as long as you let your body do it, as long as you get out of the way of keeping it from doing its thing, trust your body, your body will let you sleep. I do think it's really tricky messaging-wise in the sleep world as of late because I think we tipped really far towards we're not prioritizing sleep enough. We need to get people to care about sleep. So we're going to tell them all of these really scary things about (laughs) why they need to be making sleep a priority in their life. But then for people who are struggling to sleep, and when I've gone through periods where I've struggled to sleep, those things sit in your brain and they play on repeat at like two and three in the morning and you just feel like you're screwed. So I do think it is really tricky from a messaging perspective that like, yes, sleep is important and we need to prioritize it. But also, we don't need to stress out about it so much that we are preventing ourselves from getting good sleep. Exactly. You hit the nail on the head there. It's really tricky messaging. 
And I agree that we've maybe tipped too far into the scaremongering side of things. But I think there's a good reason for that, too. There are probably a lot more people who are not giving themselves enough opportunity to sleep. They're like burning the candle at both ends or staying up, playing video games or working too hard. There are more of those people than people who have insomnia. So if we had to just give one headline, maybe the headline that helps the most people is, hey, you need to get more sleep. But it is then really tricky for folks who are having insomnia or just struggling with their chronotype, which is their circadian rhythm tendency. If you're a night owl living in a morning bird society, then you feel like you have insomnia even if you don't, right? So it's really tricky because everybody has a different type of sleep issue and it's hard to find one message that fits everybody. Mm. There was a really interesting part of your book to this point where you talk about the difference between feeling tired and feeling sleepy. Can you explain that difference to me? Yeah. I'm so glad you asked that because this is probably one of the keys just for everyone to sleep better. So tired is when you are exhausted, you're dragging, you're so done with the day and you're stressed out and you just don't have anything left in you. That's tired. Whereas sleepy is you're about to fall asleep. So the two are different and you can be tired. You've had a really long day. You're really overwhelmed, but you are not necessarily sleepy yet. And you could be sleepy without necessarily being tired. And the reason it's really important to separate the two is that sometimes when we think that they're the same thing, we go to bed too early when we're just tired, but not sleepy yet. So then, of course, you're going to have insomnia if you do that because your body's just not sleepy yet. You don't have enough sleep drive saved up. And then you're struggling to sleep and you can't, and then it's really frustrating. And then you get more anxious and you get more frustrated. And then you're even more exhausted and you're still not falling asleep. So that's the worst case insomnia scenario, right? We want to know the difference between tired and sleepy so that we're going to bed at the appropriate time. So what should we do when we're tired but not sleepy? Look for what is the real source of the tiredness? Is it dehydration? Is it stress? Is it you drank too much coffee and you were too jittery all day? Is it your kids are driving you crazy? <laughs> Is it like trying to be working parents while also trying to further yourself and trying to fit in yoga? You know, sometimes women are taught that we need to do it all. And that's the baseline. If perfection is your baseline, then you're just going, 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 and you're never, never reaching your goal. And that's exhausting. So a lot of my patients are simply in this state of working way too hard and being way too hard on themselves. This might feel very elementary, but I think a lot of us are really out of touch with our bodies and we've been told all these things. Are there signs that we should be looking for to tell the difference between tired and sleepy? Mm-hmm. The most surefire way to be able to tell is if you think you're sleepy, you can go to bed or go to take a nap if it's the middle of the day. And then if you don't fall asleep, then you probably weren't that sleepy and you were tired instead. And once you start paying attention to what it really feels like in your body, you can usually end up telling the difference. So usually people say sleepy is more of like a heavy eyes and you can't concentrate on the sentence you're reading. You're reading it three times and you just can't take it in. Your body is starting to drift a little bit. You're yawning a lot and you're just really wanting to nod off. That's sleepy. Whereas tired could be low energy, kind of blah, 
or you might be jittery, tired, or you might just feel kind of bored and uninspired. So if you can like get up and walk around a little bit and feel more refreshed and better, that means you were tired and all you needed was to stretch. And often going for a walk will just undo the tiredness. Sometimes there's too much caffeine in your system and caffeine withdrawal, and that can make you feel tired as well. So sometimes it's tricky to tease it apart. And is going for a walk your favorite solution for tiredness? I feel like when I'm tired, I lay on the couch and I scroll on social media, which I assume (laughs) is not your prescription. That's not my prescription. I certainly do it a lot. So you're not the only one. If I can, I will go and walk my dog. That's my best solution. But to be perfectly honest, sometimes I really just can't get the oomph up to do it. Like I've put both kids to bed. It's 830. I've had a really long day and I just don't have it within me. And yeah, then I'll just forgive myself and I'll be like, okay, tonight is a Netflix night. And that's what I write it off as. And that's okay. Tomorrow's a new day. So nothing has to be perfect. We don't have to do the best thing every time. But just keeping it in mind as, you know, maybe it's an option to stretch or drink some water, catch up with a friend. Sometimes even just calling my best friend and talking for half an hour really perks me up. And the key is to not go to bed when we are tired, but not sleepy, because then we're setting ourselves up to lay awake in bed, not sleeping, which creates that association of bed as a place of not sleeping, correct? Exactly. The brain is just very, very good at putting two and two together. If you spent a lot of time in one place or one context doing something, then that brain is going to want to do that thing in the future. So if you've spent many hours having insomnia in bed and struggling and not falling asleep and getting frustrated, then now you go to bed and your brain is going to be like, oh, I know what this place is. This is where we struggle and get frustrated and try to solve the world's problems, get anxious. Uh, You're welcome. I'm going to fire up that program right away. So your brain is trying to do you a favor, actually, but you just need to gently remind your brain, actually, (laughs) the bed is a sleepy place. And we do that by saving the bed just for sleep. And sex. You said in your book, it's okay to have sex in there. You're yeah, like, I'm not going to say, you can have sex wherever you want. <laughs> you would literally have that line in your book. You're like, wherever you want to have sex, it's good. <laughs> exactly. That was a little sassy footnote I put in there. Like, yeah, feel free to use this as an excuse to try different places to have sex. But yes, yeah, sex in bed is totally fine because, you know, generally we're having fun. We're like enjoying it. And that actually extends to other activities. I'm never going to put my foot down and say, absolutely never do anything else in bed other than sleeping and sex really anything that is enjoyable and relaxing. People love to read in bed. Great. Listen to podcasts in bed, meditate in bed. Great. The only thing I really don't want people to do in bed is to stay there and try really hard to sleep when they're not sleepy. Because then again, you're making that association with your brain. So your brain is like, this is the place where I stress out about trying to sleep. So I'm going to just do that every time I get in here. Exactly. Okay. That makes sense. Is there any research about whether or not sex at night makes you more awake? No, actually sex is conducive for good sleep. Oh, excellent. Yeah. It must be the serotonin that's released or just the fact that you're taking out some time to be mindful and in the moment and enjoying your body and your partner's body. Sometimes we forget to just enjoy the sensations through our five senses. I say to people, when was the last time you actually even just laid in bed and enjoyed the feeling of your sheets on your body and the cool breeze if you have a fan on and just enjoy the sensation of slipping into sleep? 
right? We take sleep so for granted that we just expect it to like flip a switch on and off, but it's really a nice slow ramp. And if we can enjoy that ramp, that process of going down into sleep and by really getting in touch with our bodies and sleep will be much more willing to hang out with you if you actually, you know, show up and prepare to enjoy the moment. Sex sometimes is a great way to prepare for that transition. That's a fine balance too, though, because a lot of the sleep advice you hear is create a nighttime routine, treat yourself like a baby, get the lavender pillow spray. And again, I think some of this stuff is really helpful and really good because you are having that Pavlovian effect on your brain. You're training it to see these things as signifiers of sleep. But also these things can add to the pressure of like, okay, I'm starting my sleep routine now. I better be getting sleepy. I better be going to sleep very soon. So how would you suggest that we navigate that balance? Oh, such a great point. I like to say have bumpers, but be flexible. Or another way to think about it is think of sleep as your friend. You know, in any friendship, you need to have some boundaries. Don't call me at 3 a.m. Try to cancel plans ahead of time if you can't make it. But there's also flexibility within friendships. We can't say to our friend, my way or the highway, you have to show up to this restaurant at this time, precisely on the dot or else. We have to find that balance in coming up with a routine that feels good to you and is inviting for your friend's sleep to come visit, but then not be so rigid that you really hold sleep to this precise routine and allow yourself to have some leeway. Sometimes it's okay to stay up until 2 a.m. catching up with people, or it's okay to go out and have some drinks. Nobody has to be a monk to have a really good relationship with sleep. Have a general sense of what works for you as a routine, and then don't be afraid to break that routine to accommodate the rest of your life. And then to your point of not spending time in bed when you are trying to sleep or having trouble sleeping, and a lot of other sleep experts recommend this as well, is to get up out of bed if it's 3 a.m. and you're not sleeping and you're just stressing about not sleeping. But the worst insomnia I have ever had in my life was when I did that. And I think it's because if I stay in bed, I often will kind of drift back into sleep, even if I don't feel like I'm sleeping and then it'll suddenly be morning or I can kind of make that happen or I can wait for that to happen. But if I get up, I'm so much more awake all of a sudden and then I'm not sleeping at all. And then all of a sudden, I'm also creating this pattern. I've found if I start to wake up at like 3 a.m., I wake up at 3 a.m. the next day and the next day and the next day, and then I'm getting up out of bed at 3 a.m. So do you have any advice for that type of situation? Absolutely. So that's a very common experience, actually. Probably the most common resistance to the idea of getting out of bed is, well, then I'll really wake up. So a couple of things. One, I would say the actionable thing to do if you find yourself caught up in that is by all means, stay in bed. If your bed is cozy and you're comfortable and you're drifting, enjoy that bed. You can have a very good relationship with your bed, even if you're awake in it, as long as you're not trying really hard to fall asleep. It's more about changing your intention in that moment. Stop trying to hunt down sleep like you're a hunter and sleep is a little scared rabbit and you're chasing it through the forest. Instead, just lay back and enjoy something else. Fantasize about your dream vacation or do a mindfulness body scan just to get in touch with your body or listen to a podcast or listen to an audiobook. Just enjoy that time. And hey, if during that enjoyment, you sometimes slip off into sleep, great. And if not, at least you've enjoyed your time and you haven't spent it getting really frustrated. So that's 
a really good option is to physically stay in bed, but just change your approach. But the other thing I would say is often when people find themselves in that really bad, like I got up and then it got even worse scenario is because they did it with the wrong intention. Again, they were like, okay, I'm following this advice from this sleep expert to get up out of bed and that'll put me back to sleep, right? But that's not supposed to put you back to sleep. The whole point is not to go back to sleep because you probably won't, like you're getting up out of bed, right? The point is to stop the cycle of staying in bed and getting really frustrated and learning that the bed is a frustrating place. So if you're able to break that cycle without physically getting out of bed, all the better. But if you're the type of person who really needs that change of scene, that change of context to really snap yourself out of it, getting out of bed could be really good. So I think it depends on the person. You could try either way and see what you know helps the ultimate goal, which is to have a more easy relationship with sleep and with your bed. So get out of bed, but don't be like, this needs to make me sleepy. Just be like, I'm going to get out of bed and enjoy whatever happens out of bed. Okay. I have some nitpicky questions about the laying in bed. When I lay in bed at 3 a.m., if I read a book, I often feel that it wakes my brain up too much. So I go on my phone and I scroll on Quora, which I just find to be just stimulating enough, but mostly deeply boring. So it puts me to sleep. (laughs) Or I'll go on like Wikipedia history holes, things like that, where I'm just like, I'm going to research 18th century France. I am, though, on my phone in that time, which a lot of experts will say, like, do not be on your phone. Do not be on your phone. What are your thoughts on scrolling on your phone in those wake up windows? You can be on your phone. So (laughs) I know that's like the best piece of news that people think I can ever give. And it's true with a couple of explainers for that. One is whatever stimulation you're getting from the light on your phone is not going to be as much stimulation as the frustration of having insomnia in that moment. If that is true for you, laying there awake, staring at the ceiling is just so frustrating that it's much better to just read something on your phone or play with something by all means, you know, the lesser of two evils, right? And Hey, worst case scenario, you still don't sleep, but you learn about 18th century France and that's pretty cool. Right. And At the end of it, you will probably honestly feel better even if you're awake for the same amount of time because you did not have the anxiety and the frustration to really tax your system. Often people say, oh, I didn't sleep well last night, so I'm really tired today. And then we start to pick at it, looking at the history of their sleep data to really see, well, is it the fact that you were awake for an hour last night that you're tired? Or is it because you were super frustrated during that hour and like beating yourself up during that whole time that makes you feel tired? If I made you do that right now in the middle of the afternoon, just get really frustrated with yourself about something you cannot control, you're going to be tired at the end of that, right? So if you do that in the middle of the night, why wouldn't it have the same detrimental effect? Save yourself the angst and just enjoy your phone. So that's one. And number two If you get lots of light during the day, that counteracts the effects of light at night. So if you go outside and play for half an hour, if you go for a run or sit on the sidelines at your kid's soccer tournament, that's enough light to counteract whatever screens you're going to do in the middle of the night for like an hour or two. So don't worry too much about light. Go ahead and enjoy your Wikipedia. 
Can you explain a little bit more about that? And then we'll get back to my nitpicky questions about middle of the night wakeups. But I love the clarity with which you talk about day versus night contrast in terms of light viewing. It feels very permission giving and it simplifies this very complex topic of light entering our eyes and the effects of it. So can you explain why getting bright light during the day will like let you be on your phone in the middle of the night or watch your favorite shows in the evening as you're winding down? Yes, great question. The brain is living in this dark, dark cave of our skull. Our brains have no idea what's going on in the outside world other than through our senses. And the window to our brain is really the eyes and how much light is going into the eyes. And then how much light hits the back walls of your eyeballs. There's a almost direct channel from that to a part of your brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. We'll just call that the master clock because that's what it is. It's the master clock of your circadian system, which is a whole network of billions of biological clocks that govern your body. So your master clock really loves to know when it's day and when it's night. When it knows very predictably every 24 hours is a cycle and this is daytime with lots of light coming in, this is nighttime with very little light coming in, then the master clock is happy. When the master clock is happy, it can send all the right signals to the rest of the body to make it work at the appropriate time. So make you sleepy at the right times, make you awake at the right times. What the master clock doesn't like is when it's confused. When you have lots of light at night, it gets confusing. When you're in a dark cave all day, it's confusing. When you have both going on at the same time, it's even more confusing. So the bigger the contrast between how much light you get during the day and how much light you get at night, the bigger the contrast, the better. So that's why if you go outside and you know walk your dog for 20 minutes first thing in the morning, that's a really solid anchor for your master clock to know, okay, this is morning. This is the start of our day. It's that really predictable anchor in our 24-hour clock. And then when you've done that, the light outside is so bright that it's going to really overwhelm any amount of iPad light, especially if you put it on night shift mode at night. So then your brain will not be confused. It's like, okay, we're getting a little bit light now, but it's way less than what we got earlier. So it must be nighttime now. I don't know if this is too nitpicky or if there's even research that's this granular, (laughs) but is it one-to-one? Like if you want to watch shows for an hour at night, should you aim for an hour of bright light or daylight during the day? That is a really good question. I'm not sure that there's direct dose response research on this, but the research that we do have generally has bright light exposure for 20 to 30 minutes during the day. And then they have people on some sort of screen for like an hour or two at night. So it's not like one minute of bright light during the day equals one minute in the evening. The daytime light is pretty powerful, especially when you get it in the morning. So even a dose of 20 minutes can be pretty powerful and buy you a couple hours of screen time at night. I absolutely love a low-lift daily habit that has a big payoff over time. It's why I'm always asking podcast guests for little hacks and tips that we can all do easily to live a better life without sacrificing a ton of time or energy. And that's why I love AG1, the daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. I know there are a lot of people who wonder if AG1 is overhyped because so many people talk about it, but in this case, it's just one of those things that's super hyped because it's actually that good. 
I gave AG1 a try because I wanted a single solution that supports my entire body and covers my nutritional bases every day, no matter how the rest of the day goes, especially for gut health and immune support. I just mix a scoop of AG1 into my water. You can also mix it into juice or a smoothie, but I genuinely love the taste, so I go with water. And boom, you have this incredible insurance that you've gotten your foundational nutrition in from that one-minute habit in your day. I'm always trying to eat veggie-packed, nutritionally dense meals, but I am not perfect, so AG1 helps support me with 75 vitamins, minerals, whole foods, source superfoods, and adaptogens to cover the bases. I love how it gives me some gentle energy right after I drink it without any jitters so it doesn't stoke my anxiety like caffeine. It gives me a ton of mental clarity and clears any sluggishness or brain fog that I have, which is why even though a lot of people start their day with it, I actually prefer to drink mine in the early afternoon when I have that 3 p.m. slump. And it is not a placebo effect. AG1 has so many ingredients that have been extensively researched for their brain health effects like rhodiola root dry extract, hawthorn berry, and rosemary to name just a few. It also has less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, and no artificial anything, and they are third-party tested, which is always so important to look for. So if you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a one-year supply of their amazing vitamin D3 and K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash Liz Moody. That's drinkag1.com slash Liz Moody. I am so, so excited to share this brand with you. I started trying Osmia because Zach and I were nomading in Carbondale and everyone was like, oh, the founder of Osmia lives there. You should hang out with her. So I DM'd her and we hung out and I was blown away by how brilliant she was and how absolutely incredible her products were. After a decade in emergency medicine, Dr. Sarah Villafranco founded Osmia to help people discover healthier, happier skin. Sound familiar? Without the use of parabens, phthalates, petrochemicals, sulfates, ethoxylates, synthetic fragrance, or artificial colors. But the products do not sacrifice at all when it comes to efficacy. Sarah is utilizing a deep understanding of science and of the whole health of our body, like how our skin interacts with our gut and our hormones to create the most beautiful and lovely to use products. I'm going to call out a few of my favorites. I told Sarah that my skin was so dry in the Colorado climate and I needed help and she introduced me to two products that have become my absolute heroes. The Lip Repair Overnight Mask is literally exactly like the viral Laneige lip sleeping mask, but with way better ingredients, which is so important because you are literally eating it all night. It completely healed my dry cracked lips and it made them buttery soft and I just cannot recommend it enough. Then the Nectar Nourishing Drops are like magic in a bottle and a total favorite. Oils can be hard to penetrate skin on their own, but the secret with these is that you mix them into a moisturizer. You can use any moisturizer, but I love the Osmia Purely Simple Face Cream, and then it turns that moisturizer into the most luxurious, super-powered hydrator in the world. It's calming. It's so moisturizing. I've just never had my skin feel like this. And because you only use a few drops each time, it lasts forever. Sarah is also famous for creating products that help with perioral dermatitis or when you get red and broken out around your mouth, eczema, and acne, even when nothing else works. So I highly recommend checking out that area of her site. If you deal with those, you can search by skin type. And then finally, I want to shout out the Bar Soap, which is her first product and what she got famous for. 
Besides being eco-friendly because you're skipping all the packaging, the ingredients in these soaps are amazing. They make your skin feel so good and they smell so good. My two favorites are Coffee Mint, which is part of their core soap collection, and Amber Sun, which is a seasonal soap. They have a seasonal collection called the Craft Series in the featured section of the website, and they release super special soaps, body oils, and body mousses for every season, so definitely check those out. If you would like to try any Osmia skincare products for yourself, they have so generously created a code for the Liz Moody podcast listeners. Code Liz Moody is good for 20% off your first order with Osmia at osmiaskincare.com. You need to try the lip repair mask. Trust me. So add that to your cart right away. Once again, code Liz Moody is good for 20% off your first order with Osmia at osmiaskincare.com. Okay, going back to our middle of the night wake-ups, you're like, just relax, don't stress out about it, learn about 18th century France. And that's all well and good if you don't have the pressure of a stressful day the next day or something that you feel like you need to be awake or on for. What do we do if we feel like we need that sleep to perform in some way the following day? Well, the question I would ask back is, have you had those experiences in the past where you had a big day and you didn't sleep so well the night before because you were excited or you had a flight to catch or whatever, and then the day was like, fine. I've had a lot, and this is honestly the thing that I tell myself the most. It is so comforting to me to be like, I did this podcast interview that I was really proud of on a day that I didn't sleep very well, especially because what I do is I get stressed about the podcast interview and then that impacts my sleep. So these exciting things are actually that I'm trying to be really awake and on point for are the things that are impacting my sleep. So it's very helpful for me to say, you've done that in the past and it's been not only okay, but often great. Yeah, there you go. If we are honest with ourselves, we all have those experiences. Think back to your wedding day. Was it the best day of your life? Oh my gosh. That brought up such a memory. I literally uh -huh. was up at 5 a.m. because we did <gasps> flavored wow. popcorn as the reception hour snack. And I was up at 5 a.m. writing the recipes for this flavored popcorn and then making a list to send my dad to the grocery store to get the oh ingredients for this flavored popcorn because I couldn't sleep. And I was like, oh, shoot, we have nothing for people to eat during the reception hour. There you go. And then you went and <laughs> had your wedding. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. I fully forgot about that. Yeah. I mean, we can be pretty amazed if we really just think back to how resilient we've been in the past and how our bodies are actually really able to just like step up and pull it together for truly important events. So if it's something truly high stakes and important, you could have pulled an all-nighter. And you would still probably be okay because our bodies are very flexible and resilient. Imagine if we were so dependent on getting good sleep every night in order to function, how could our species possibly have survived this long, right? There were times back in the early hominid days when we probably had to up and leave in the middle of the night because there was a tiger in the camp, right? Trust in your body, trust in your ability to do okay, and remind yourself that you've done it before so you can do it again. Are there data to support that, that people's performance doesn't tend to be impacted as much as we think it is after a night of poor sleep? 
there's this really interesting study. <laughs> older adult by older they mean middle aged and older adults versus very young adults like in their early twenties. I think they were college students. For both of these groups, half the group was sleep deprived for a night, so they were only allowed to sleep for like three or four hours or something like that, and the other group was just allowed to sleep normally. What do you think happened to their performance the next day? For the young people and for the old people, and for the sleep deprived people and for the non sleep deprived people, what would you guess? My assumption would be that across the board, the sleep deprived people would perform worse.、Mm -hmm. Yep. So if we just take everyone who's sleep deprived compared to non sleep deprived, yes, there was some worse performance. But here's the catch: it was a lot more big of a problem for the young people, whereas. The middle-aged people and the older people had a lot more resilience, if you will, where their performance was a lot less affected by sleep deprivation than for their younger counterparts. But here's a really, really fun part, which is the young people thought they performed really, really well, whereas the older people thought they performed really badly. So basically, the young people actually had worse performance, like a big detriment when they were sleep deprived, but they were really cocky about it. Whereas the older people did not have that much of a detriment after a night of sleep deprivation, but they were really worried about it, and they thought they had a lot、oh. more detriment. So it's almost like we need opposite messaging for college students who are like, <laughs> "Yeah, I can pull an all-nighter, no problem. I can still ace that test or whatever." Whereas for those of us who we have more experience, whatever it is that's serving as a buffer for us or for the older folks, clearly that's working well for them, and they need to know so they're less worried when they are having a bad night. Oh, that's absolutely fascinating. Why are we waking up at three a.m. in the first place? The first half of your night and the second half of your night are qualitatively different. It's like two legs of a relay race run by two different people. The first half is More non-REM sleep, and that's where all your deep sleep happens. So your deep sleep, your brain prioritizes it because that's the clearing the toxins and releasing the growth hormones and all that good stuff, right? So that gets done in the first half of the night, and then the second half of the night is a lot more REM heavy. REM is rapid eye movement sleep. Not only are they two very different sort of sleep architectures going on in the first versus the second half. The first half is more driven by sleep drive, so this is your like hunger for sleep. That's what you're building throughout the day, as you're awake and upright and doing stuff. You're saving up sleep drive like coins in a piggy bank. That piggy bank runs out by the middle of the night, and the rest of the night is really powered by your circadian rhythm. Remember that master clock. The master clock is saying we've run out of sleep drive. It seems, but it's still the middle of the night according to my calculations. So let's keep going. So because the two halves of the night are so different and they're driven by two different forces, there's often a gap in the middle. That's why it's a very common thing for people to wake up at two a.m., three a.m., and a few more awakenings for the rest of the night is common too because there's a lot more light sleep and REM sleep. And in pre-industrial times, people used to just go with the flow of that wake up. They just get up and be awake for an hour or two, visiting neighbors, singing songs, rising bread, or whatever, and then go back for their second sleep. It would be so annoying if you weren't awake <laughs> and you were trying to sleep, and your neighbors were singing a little ditty, and you're like, "No, no, I'm actually sleeping right now. Thank you so much."
That, uh, that's hilarious. Yeah, I wonder how that worked. But yeah, that was just the thing to do. It was like a little intermission in the night where people were just awake and they were not worried about it, not bothered by it. And then they went back to sleep after that. So then why do some people not wake up at 3 a.m.? Is that because they're doing all of the things to set their master clock throughout the day? Not necessarily. There's a diversity among people in terms of just how light of a sleeper we are. If you're a super light sleeper, tiny awakening might make you fully awake. Whereas if you're less prone to you know, environmental disruption, maybe less prone to anxiety too, where you maybe wake up briefly, but it's such a non-event that you just go right back to sleep. Your brain doesn't even clock the event. You don't remember it the next day and you feel like you didn't even wake up at all. So there's just variation between people and how like prone we are to remembering waking up. And also it kind of depends on just how sleep deprived you are. If you're super sleep deprived and you have this window of time to sleep, let's say the six hours of sleep, you're not going to wake up very much because your body is just so hungry for sleep. It's going to try to keep going. Whereas if you are, let's say a retiree with not a lot of things on your schedule and you have 12 hours in bed and your brain just doesn't produce 12 hours of sleep because it doesn't need to, then you're going to have a lot more awakenings at night because your body just doesn't have enough sleep drive to sleep 12 hours. I also thought that the connection that you make, this is something that I talk about all the time between the way our psychology and our physiology are functioning throughout the day and our sleep was so helpful. And you framed it with the tiredness and sleepy thing. You said that your tiredness might not be caused by your lack of sleep, but by the same problem that's causing your lack of sleep. And that was Mm -hmm. absolutely revolutionary to me. Could you explain a little bit more about that? Sure. I'm so glad that resonated with you. I think this can sometimes be the light bulb moment for people with insomnia. So here's the thing. We often think we have to sleep well in order to live well during the day right? Everyone's all about optimizing sleep so you can live to your fullest. But what if I said it's actually living to your fullest that earns you a good night's sleep? So really, sleep is just a byproduct of what happens during your day. Like if you run a marathon today, you're going to sleep a whole lot because your body just needs that catch up and that recuperation. Whereas if you were just inside on a rainy day watching Netflix all day, you didn't put much strain on your body. You're going to need less sleep. So sleep is very intelligently responding to what you're doing and what's happening during the day to basically give you what you need to recuperate from your day. So if we are not living to our fullest and we're not very physically active, not socially engaged, not filling our cup creatively or spiritually and socially in all these ways, then what is there to sleep for, right? Then your brain is like, okay, well, not much happened, so we don't need to do much to recuperate from this. Just a light night is fine. Once we really switch gears to think in this way, we can go ahead and live fully, even if we feel like we're not sleeping well. And by doing that, by putting that foot forward first, better sleep may very well follow. I also love the frame of maybe... I have this thing that's really stressing me out and that's actually the thing that's making me tired all day because Mm -hmm. my brain is noodling on this problem. My brain is active all day, being stressed, worrying, worrying, worrying. And then that same stress is the thing 
that's causing my insomnia at night. And then the insomnia is not actually the thing that's making me tired. And thus, I shouldn't be focusing all of my energy on addressing my insomnia, but rather on figuring out the root cause of that stress, addressing that stress and making my brain less tired, both in the day and then also less likely to wake me up at night. Yes, absolutely. That's a really important point too. We often go and blame sleep for all our problems, especially our tiredness. And I think that's pretty unfair to our friend's sleep, right? It's like we're putting the burden of the world, the responsibility of being alert and thinking fast and being funny and looking good. All of this responsibility is on sleep's shoulders. And then whenever we don't feel good, we blame that on sleep. And I think that's so unfair. Of course, sleep is going to not be as good friends with you if you keep doing that, right? So instead of blaming our tiredness on sleep and missing all of the other things that are making us tired, we're missing the opportunity to address the real problems. Stress is a really good example because stress, it's the worst of both worlds, right? It makes you tired during the day because you're just mentally exhausted, but then you're also hyper aroused at night. So then you can't sleep well. In the end, it becomes a vicious cycle where the not sleeping well is making you more stressed out and that's making you more tired during the day and that's making you feel more stressed out about sleep if you're still blaming that on sleep. So yes, let's look for other you know, root causes for tiredness and give sleep a break. Are there any other root causes for tiredness that you see or root causes for insomnia, waking up in the middle of the night that you feel like we're not talking enough about? Mm-hmm. A big one is boredom. And this is one that nobody spontaneously thinks of. And I never really thought about it for a really long time too. Recently, I started thinking about, hmm, what are the things that sap our energy What are the things that decrease our motivation and really weigh us down and make us feel uninspired, unmotivated, but also unfulfilled? Like going to bed, like, ugh, the day was kind of a wash. Like nothing much happened. Like it wasn't too fun or exciting. I didn't get much done and I just don't feel fulfilled. Like I didn't get to really live my day. Boredom, right? If you don't get yourself intellectually curious about something, or if you don't have fun with your friends or, you know, dig into your 18th century French history and really fill your cup in all of these ways, then you're just going to be kind of blah. And so that comes back actually to the circadian rhythm. If your mental and emotional and physical activity is super low during the day, then the contrast between day and night is not very big. So then your brain's going to be like, wait, did we just have a super long night or twilight or something? Like what happened? We didn't even have a full day. So then what are we going to sleep for? Oh my gosh, that's such an unlock. Are we sleepwalking through our days and through (laughs) our lives? And is that making it harder for us to sleep at night? Oh yeah, Uh uh-huh. Oh, that's fascinating. Okay, so you would say, is that a culprit for tiredness during the day or a culprit for lack of ability to sleep at night? both. Okay. It's interesting actually, because they are opposite things, but they're so entangled. It's like two sides of the same coin. Yeah. Are there any other sneaky culprits that you commonly see? Yeah. And this especially goes out to the ladies. (laughs) This is not resting during the day. 
It's going to sound a little bit contradictory to what I just said, because I just said, if you're bored, if you're not doing too much, then you're not going to sleep well and you're going to feel tired. That is true. But if you're overdoing it, it can also make you tired and overstimulated and then not sleep well. So I have lots of patients who are super moms who are like volunteering and taking care of kids and working and meal planning and doing the emotional labor of making sure their brother-in-law and their husband are getting along at the family function and just all the types of things that are not easy to compartmentalize and just put down at night, right? These are the types of things you kind of keep turning over in your mind. It's like if your brain is a computer browser, there's like a thousand tabs open and you can't really close any of them. That's kind of what it can feel like if you go, 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 go all day. And that is basically sending the message to your body that there's a saber-tooth tiger chasing you. Because otherwise, why would you not rest and pick fleas out of your friend's hair and eat it or whatever the early humans did, right? Like if you're not doing that and resting under the shade of a tree in the middle of the day, yeah, then there must be some dire situation that's driving you to keep going and going. And if there's a dire situation, some danger, then of course you're not going to sleep well because sleep is a very vulnerable state. So reassure your body that actually, yes, it is safe and all is well in your surroundings by giving yourself a rest during the middle of the day. And maybe that's a siesta nap, like a 20, 30 minute nap. But if you don't like napping, that's fine too. You can rest. And by rest, I mean real rest, not like scroll on your phone while watching TV, while doing something else, multitasking rest. I mean, true, put away the work, put away the screens, take a walk, lay down, read a paper book that's just for fun. It's not productive in any way. Or like water your plants that you can engage your body or not, but at least let your mind rest. Okay. So I am positive that your patients have pushed back on this and said, look, if I had time <laughs> for that, I would do that. But look at all of these things that would fall to the wayside. I don't have time to rest. What do you tell them? Mm-hmm. Then I start to just be curious. What are these things that are falling by the wayside? How fatal would it be? What would fall apart if you didn't do X or didn't do Y? And almost always, in fact, I think probably always, the answer is like, well, then, you know, so-and-so wouldn't have a clean uniform for cheer practice, or we would have to heat up a frozen lasagna tonight instead of having a fresh meal. I'm like, okay. And? get really irreverent about it. Like, what is the big deal? What do you really want to prioritize? You know, why are you sacrificing your health day after day just for like a slight bit of convenience for someone else or slight bit of perfection in this area that have we even questioned whether perfection is necessary? And also, if you are the glue holding everything together and you're like, if I don't do it, nobody will do it, then that really means you need to not do it. And let the system fail because that's the only way that somebody else will learn how to do laundry or learn how to put away the dishes or learn to remember so-and-so's birthday. Because if you always do it, what incentive is there for anybody else to step up, right? A hundred (laughs) percent. Snaps to that. A hundred percent. Is there any research that shows what our bodies find to be most restful. Like I feel a difference when I read a fiction book than when I scroll on social media afterward, but I'm curious 
what the data actually shows about that. Mm. The data shows that the very, very most restful and wonderful and rejuvenating thing is taking a walk in nature. And there's a reason that I think different cultures have even really cool names for it. There's a Japanese term that means forest bathing. If you take a walk through the forest, that is so cool. There's actually research showing that it's calming for your body. It slows your heart rate, boosts your immune function, just is physically healthy and mentally healthy. I am not surprised by that at all because when I walk through my park over here, it just feels like I can breathe, you know, and I'm moving my body. I can be with my body. Sometimes I daydream in my mind, but either way, it's like I am here in this moment and it's just so much more easy to be mindful when we are in that setting. Of course, that's not possible all the time. You can always find a bit more mindfulness when you do a mindful breathing meditation, body scan, even just a really quick five, four, three, two, one, which is when you just walk through your five senses and say, what are five things I see around me? Four things I hear, three things I feel with my body, two things I smell, one thing I taste. Even if it's just 60 seconds that you take to like catalog those things, what you haven't done during those 60 seconds is continue to spiral and be very stuck up in your mind. So out of your head, into your body. Whatever way you can find to do that is going to be restful. It's so funny because I know on a very visceral level that that's true, that I'll feel better if I do those things, but the bar feels higher. Like if you told me you can sit and scroll for five minutes or you can meditate, I'm like, oh, I know I'll feel better after I meditate, but it's (laughs) harder to get myself to do it initially. And I don't know why that is. And sometimes I find that really hard to overcome. It is really hard. I feel that too. And I think honestly, I probably wouldn't meditate very much at all if I didn't do it with my patients. And that's the honest truth. I probably would default to scrolling as well. And I think honestly, that's just because phones are designed to be very addictive. We have these tiny little dopamine hits that are like candy or potato chips or whatever keeps you reaching for more. It's like that little micro hit of dopamine every time you move your thumb And it's just so easy to keep going. So really, I think there's not an easy answer to that. It's really just about doing it before you feel the motivation to do it. Because if we wait for motivation to change, then we'll be waiting for a long time. Whereas if we just do it, even just by brute force, even just a tiny little bit, we do a 5-4-3-2-1 and then reach for the phone, then the good feeling that you feel from doing that tiny bit of mindfulness will make it just that much more easy for you to do it again next time. I love that. You're also opposed to lingering in bed. You say that's another sneaky culprit. Can you speak to why that is? First of all, you're allowed to linger a little bit. I'm not that mean. (laughs) My three-year-old likes to climb in bed with me at seven in the morning and we snuggle and that's a really nice time. So a little bit of lingering is fine. When we get into trouble with lingering too long is then we, first of all, miss an opportunity to start our day and start saving up sleep drive. This is not so much an issue if you don't have any trouble with insomnia, but if you have insomnia or you feel like you could use a little bit of help to have less trouble falling asleep or staying asleep, then you know if you don't linger in bed, that's just that much more time for your body to start saving up sleep drive. Sleep drive is that hunger that you build only when you're out of bed and upright and doing stuff. And also 
coming back to the circadian rhythm thing, one of the most powerful things you can do for good, healthy sleep is to get up at the same time or about the same time every day. So if you sometimes linger, like on weekends, you linger for like an hour in bed or two hours in bed, then that's going to confuse your circadian rhythm a little bit. And it'll wonder like, huh, did we travel two time zones over to Denver? Or if you sleep in or linger in by three hours, then it's going to be like, whoa, we flew all the way to California. And that's going to be extra hard when you have to fly back to New York on Monday morning. And that back and forth of what we call social jet lag is really tough for the circadian system. And whatever is tough and confusing for the circadian system means worse sleep for us. Money was such a source of anxiety for me for a long time. I'm always talking about building good, healthy habits, but I didn't have any when it came to financial wellness. Once I started getting educated about my money, I began to feel empowered about it. And pretty soon I was like, how did I let this cause me so much anxiety for so long? If you are struggling just like I was, you need to check out YNAB. YNAB is an app that teaches a set of simple money habits to help you spend, save, and give without guilt or second guessing. It's one of the apps that experts I talk to recommend over and over because it's grounded in techniques that you won't see anywhere else that actually work. You start off by learning four simple core habits that are actually genius and have completely changed the way that I think about money. And then it guides you through saving so you are never caught off guard by a surprise expense again, so you feel safe and secure with money. But maybe more importantly, it also helps you fit the things that you love into your spending plan so that you know you have the money for that bachelorette party or that weekend getaway that you've been dreaming of. Also, and I love this, you can add up to six users to one account. So if you manage money as roommates or with your partner, it has got you covered. It has incredibly high ratings on all platforms and has become a huge cult hit because it's helped millions of people actually build the financial life of their dreams, even people who truly thought it was impossible. Check out YNAB and learn the habits with a one-month free trial, no credit card required, at www.yabb.com ynab.com slash Liz Moody. You'll get a month completely free and be able to see for yourself what a big difference it makes. I promise you're going to get back way more than you spend. That's www.ynab.com slash Liz Moody. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should at least be simple. That's why for more than five years now, I've been drinking AG1. It's just one scoop mixed in water, and it makes me feel energized and focused without any kind of caffeine jitters. I discovered AG1 after a ton of research because I was looking for one simple habit I could incorporate into my day that would support my entire body and cover my nutritional bases. No matter what the rest of the day looks like, I know that I'm getting essential brain, gut, and immune health support. I just mix a scoop of AG1 into my water. I think it tastes delicious too, which I know people are always nervous about, but I think it's like a tropical vanilla flavor and I crave it, especially because I associate the flavor with feeling so good. Of course, we're always trying to eat our fruits and vegetables and balance meals over here, but nobody is perfect. So AG1 helps support me with 75 vitamins, minerals, whole foods, or superfoods and adaptogens. I especially love it for all of the travel I've been doing. I think it's a huge reason why I still feel so good and have avoided getting sick despite being on a plane a few times a week for so much of this year and having to eat out so often. 
AG1 is rigorously third-party tested, which you know I always look out for. It also has less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, and no artificial anything. AG1 is one of the highest quality products to elevate your health, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. So if you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash Liz Moody. That's drinkag1.com slash Liz Moody. Check it out. I've had this mindset shift recently where I used to be a big bed lingerer in the morning. I just had a really hard time getting out of bed because I always woke up and I felt really groggy. And my vibe was like, oh, I need to wait until I don't feel groggy anymore and then I'll get up and I'll start my day. And I've realized that the thing that makes me feel not groggy is getting up and starting my day. So now I'm like, oh, you're going to feel groggy. So just get up and get outside, do your workout, do your morning routine. And that's going to be the thing that makes you not feel groggy versus waiting in bed to have that feeling dissipate. And that's been so helpful for me. Oh, I'm so happy for you. That's so true. Yes. That's another good example of you put behavior before feeling. And then the feeling actually follows. It's kind of a good analogy with depression. The way to get out of a depressive funk is just to act as if you don't have depression and do the things you would do anyway. And then depression is much likely to go away if you're active. So that grogginess is like a tiny mini version of that blah depression feeling. It's not actually depression. I'm just using that as a metaphor. But that grogginess is called sleep inertia. And that's very normal. Just like it's a ramp to get down into sleep, it's a ramp to come up out of sleep. We don't need to expect ourselves to just snap out of sleep and be like bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. That's not really realistic and not necessary either. We can take a few minutes to be not fully on and just go through the motions of your morning routine and that's okay. Like you don't need to be fully on when you first wake up. I have a tip in my book about how you can do like a really quick bout of exercise, even like 60 seconds they've studied of jumping jacks and it gets rid of sleep inertia. Have you heard about that? Yeah, that's part of what sleep psychologists do with like EMTs or firefighters firefighters. need to like really snap out of it real quick and actually be alert and functioning than just a few jumping jacks and run in place and take a few deep breaths. And there it is. Talk to me about the sleepy window. I have said to myself many times that if I don't go to bed right when I'm tired, I'll get the second wave of energy that makes it much harder to fall asleep. And I feel like that's true, but you say that's a false alarm. So (laughs) what am I feeling and what should I do about it? Yes, this is a great question. And it's going to be a bit of a different answer depending on if I'm talking to someone with insomnia or not. So people are very reluctant to go to bed too late because they fear that second wind. And that is a very real phenomenon. A lot of people experience it. But that second wind could really just be not actually a second wind, but rather the sleepiness that you felt earlier, let's say at like 8 p.m. or 9 p.m., is actually a false alarm sleepiness. So by that point, you've been saving up sleep drive for many hours now, maybe not quite enough to buy yourself a full good night of sleep, but enough to really like make you start to feel sleepy. And then your alertness signals, the light that you get from the daytime and the hustle bustle of your day and needing to be on top of stuff, that stuff has gone away. It's after dinner, maybe the kids are in bed. So now your alertness can finally take a breath and say, phew, okay, 
not be so alert anymore and your sleepiness is high because you've been going all day, you're very much at a point where you could feel that false alarm of, whoa, I'm really sleepy. And then once your body catches its breath, it's like, okay, now that we've sat down for a few minutes, we've loaded the dishwasher, like, okay, now we're back to normal. And the back to normal can feel like that second wind. So for pretty much every person with insomnia I've worked with, when we just suspended our disbelief and said, forget the second wind, just go to bed later anyway, it's worked out fine. And they slept better after our program of going to bed later and et cetera. For someone without insomnia, it really depends on the person, but they could potentially just be truly sleepy earlier and they're sleep deprived and they really should be going to bed earlier than usual. But then whatever they're doing to hype themselves up later at night, whether it's playing video games or trading crypto or revenge bedtime procrastination or whatever it may be that's getting in the way is like falsely hyping them up again and giving them a true second wind. So for those people, I would say, listen to your body. When you feel sleepy, that's your cue to go to bed and start winding down and sleep. But yeah, it's really tricky. It depends on who you're talking to. Is there anything that we can do if we want to go to bed earlier on a given night? Like we have an early flight, we have an early meeting, something like that? The most sure way to achieve that is to get up really early the previous day, which you may or may not want to do because that's a pain in the butt. But the idea is then you've built up more of that sleep drive and thus you'll be able to go to sleep earlier the following night. Right, exactly. So that's the brute force way of doing it. You could also just try going to bed earlier and like really making it super relaxing, take a hot bath and meditate and stuff. It's not a guarantee because if you're not sleepy, you're not sleepy. And if your circadian rhythm is like, nope, it's still early, then it's going to say that. So don't be discouraged if that happens. Just be like, oh, well, I gave it a try and my body's not ready. That's okay. I'll just have and to sleep And I've performed less. really well on nights where I haven't slept well in the past. So I'm a-okay. Exactly. And the data supports that. Yes, exactly. Let's bust some other sleep myths. So you say that exercising close to bedtime does not increase wakefulness. I've heard that over and over and over again. Can you speak to that? Yeah. So the most recent research, I think just 2022 meta-analysis, which is where you pull data from a bunch of studies to say like, okay, overall, what have people found? And it's like pretty well established based on that meta-analysis that it's okay to exercise in the evenings and that will even possibly have a tiny positive effect for your sleep. Now, I have worked with people where it really was the case where whenever they exercised too late, they had trouble sleeping. So I think it's a bit of a person-to-person individual thing. But overall, I would say err on the side of allowing yourself to exercise and just seeing if that really does bother your sleep. And probably it won't. If it does, then you'll just switch gears. Often people are too afraid of this happening. So then they purposely don't try to exercise in the evening and then they miss this good opportunity to exercise. And then they don't end up exercising much at all because they're busy the rest of the day. And then they pay the price of that for like all the consequences of being sedentary. And then they also don't sleep well because they haven't been active. So probably you'll sleep better to get any exercise at all than to avoid exercising in the evening. And I also love the permission giving of it too, because I know people who 
are like, it hasn't impacted my sleep. They've experienced positive benefits of working out late and then they stop doing it because they've heard like, oh no, don't do it. Yeah, no. Trust your body. You know, your body tells you what it likes and what it doesn't like. So if it's been fine in the past, it'll probably be fine again. You also say the 90-minute sleep cycle is a myth. Talk to me about that. Yeah. So I think there's maybe like a oversimplified way of thinking about a sleep cycle. I put that in air quotes cycle as if it was like a rinse, lather, repeat very rigid kind of thing that happens at night. Usually what people are referring to is we go light sleep, medium sleep, deep sleep, REM sleep, and then we'll do light sleep, medium, deep, REM again. And so we'll cycle through those stages a few times throughout the night. And they say it's 90 minute cycles from end to end. That's more or less true for most people for the first cycle. And then after Mm. that, it's kind of like, eh, it depends on what kind of sleeper you are and what you did during the day and how hot or cold it is and all sorts of things. And it doesn't have to be exactly the same shape. Your sleep architecture is responsive to what happens in your environment and in your body by design. Because if it were rigid, then it would not be able to adapt to the needs of the moment. So there's no need to achieve any sort of perfect sleep cycle. And even if you wanted to, you couldn't manipulate that anyways. It's just something automatic that your brain does. So all these clocks that say, oh, we're going to time it perfectly so you wake up out of the correct part of a sleep cycle. First of all, how are they doing that? It's not very accurate. And two, why? Mm. There's no need to. Is there any benefit to waking up when you're not in REM or deep sleep period? Unless you're a shift worker, like an EMT firefighter, if you're a a pretty steady nighttime sleeper, by the time you're getting up for the morning, your deep sleep is long gone. That happened the first one third or one half of the night. So you're very unlikely to be waking up out of a deep sleep stage. Very, very unlikely. And if you are, that means you were so sleep deprived that your body was just trying to catch up on multiple, multiple nights of like severe sleep deprivation. And you may very well wake up out of REM. That's perfectly fine. That's just when you remember your dreams, you probably woke up out of REM. When you don't remember your dreams, you probably woke up out of light sleep or medium sleep. Makes sense. Okay. And then I don't know if this is true or not. So we might be myth busting. We might be myth confirming. But I have heard that if you need to get more deep sleep, going to bed earlier is the best thing you can do because the deep sleep mostly happens before midnight. And you've said a few times that deep sleep happens early in our sleep, but does it matter when you go to bed to have more or less deep sleep? Very good question. So your sleep doesn't know the clock time. Your master clock inside your brain that we talked about before, uh, that master clock has no idea what your clock on the wall says. So it doesn't care technically, chronologically what time it is. It cares what biological time it is for your sleep cycle. So for example, if you are a very consistent, let's say 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. sleeper, and you're like generally a good sleeper, very consistent, then you're probably going to finish your deep sleep by 1 a.m., 2 a.m.-ish, but not because it's 1 a.m. or 2 a.m., it's because it's two or three hours into your sleep cycle. If daylight saving time happens and your clock changes, you're not going to magically like still get your deep sleep by one or two. You're going to get it by 12 or one or two or three, whichever way the clock shifted. It becomes a lot trickier to answer this question if someone is not very consistent with their sleep-wake window 
because then who knows what biological time it is for your body. Your master clock is confused. And it's like, well, we'll just do our best to catch up on deep sleep whenever we can get it. And so sometimes going to bed really late will give you more deep sleep because you're sleep deprived. Sometimes going to bed early can give you more deep sleep because you've been sleep deprived and now you're catching up. You know, it depends on what happened before, what your usual consistency is, depends on a lot of factors. But generally, if you want really solid, good deep sleep, the best thing to do is actually just be consistent with when you get up in the morning and go to bed at a generally consistent time not too rigid, just go with your sleepiness cues on the nighttime end. But the more consistent your sleep-wake window is over time, the better your brain is able to produce good deep sleep. Okay. That makes sense because then your brain knows what time it is on its master clock. Exactly. And Mm -hmm. then that would make me think that all of the other things you're doing that help with the master clock would also be helping with increasing deep sleep as well. Exactly. Daytime light, very good for deep sleep at night. Daytime physical activity, very good also. And, you know, just daytime stimulation, lack of mm -hmm. boredom, et cetera. Yeah, exactly. Daytime versus nighttime contrast. Another myth that you busted, which I personally appreciated, is that light sleep is bullshit. I think of light (laughs) sleep as like, why is my body wasting its time on this? Can you speak to some of the good stuff that happens to us during light sleep? Yes. Oh, light sleep gets a bad reputation. And it's so unfair because half of your night is supposed to be light sleep. By light sleep, I really mean stage one and two combined. Stage one is very light. You may very well feel like you're awake when you're in stage one. That's really part of the ramp. And that's like a good transition stage if you're switching from one stage to another, one part of the cycle to another. And stage two is where you spend the bulk of your night. And good stuff happens during this time. You consolidate stuff you learn during the day. Like for athletes, for example, if you learn how to serve a tennis ball during the day, your light sleep is going to make you a better tennis player when you wake up than when you went to bed. So it's literally training you in your sleep. That's a pretty cool thing light sleep is doing for you. And memories are forming, you're consolidating your learning, lots of good things are happening and you're resting your body, not to mention that. You're not just like laying there doing nothing. Your body is actually going through lots of restful things. And it's very important. So I'm a big fan of light sleep. I like to say a healthy diet is one that's balanced and diverse in macronutrients, right? A healthy sleep, you got to have balance between the different types of sleep. Saying only deep sleep is good is like saying you should only ever eat meat. Like, oh, you know, you need balance with other types of things too. Well, there are people on the internet who do say that. (laughs) (laughs) And I wonder how well they're doing in the long term. (laughs) For sure. Are some people innately bad sleepers and other people innately good sleepers? Mm, I would not say that. I think anyone is capable of good sleep with the extremely rare exception of people who have fatal insomnia what is it? A familial fatal insomnia, but that's a misnomer. That's not an insomnia. That's not a sleep disorder. That's a neurodegenerative disorder where it just so happens that one of the side effects is that you don't sleep. So that is like the only person I can think of who's totally incapable of good sleep. And wait, just to clarify, because I feel like if I were listening to this podcast, I'd be like, oh, do I have that? Like, can you just clarify how rare that is? 
it's oh my gosh, I don't even know the specific number, but it's like a handful of people ever, like in the world. So like you having a week where you feel like you got really bad sleep or you feeling like bad sleep is consistent in your night, you don't have that thing. Just to reassure everybody. So that's the only person I can think of who truly like is not capable of good sleep. Pretty much everyone else is not inherently a bad sleeper. Although I would say for some people, they are more prone to developing sleep problems. And by prone, do you mean genetically? What makes them prone? Yeah, sometimes genetically. So there is a little bit of genetic or familial heritability in regular insomnia. About 7% of the variability in whether you have insomnia versus I have insomnia depends on whether our parents did. But that's a pretty small percentage. So by prone, I mean whether it's a familial heritability or you had childhood trauma and now you're kind of more prone to being hyper alert at night or you're just born a light sleeper. You can hear the cat walking on the carpet downstairs, whereas your partner could sleep through a storm. So we just have different kind of dispositions that may make us a little bit more prone to insomnia. But the way I like to describe it is, imagine these proneness factors are like firewood that you gather into a pile. You don't have a fire, and you may never have a fire but you're closer to having a fire than the other person over there who hasn't gathered firewood, right? So your proneness factors, like, for example, having childhood trauma is like the firewood gathered, but it doesn't guarantee you'll have insomnia. And also, if you do develop insomnia, it doesn't mean you have to have it forever. When I think about my own insomnia, I feel like it comes in waves. Like I'll have a few weeks where I feel like I'm really struggling with sleep, and then I'll have a few weeks where I feel like it's totally fine. And I wonder if that's because during the weeks when I'm struggling, I'm self-identifying as a bad sleeper. And then when I have a few nights of good sleep under my belt, I'm self-identifying as a good sleeper. Would that ring true to you? Yeah, that does ring true to me. I think a whole lot of how well you sleep is how optimistic you feel about sleeping. There's a big placebo effect here. In fact, it's a literal placebo effect with a lot of sleep medications where people are sometimes taking supplements or like such a low dose of a sleep medication is clearly not having a physiological effect. But when they have their sleep medication, they feel like, oh, I have a security blanket. I'm going to sleep well. And then they're relaxed about it. They go to bed relaxed and then they sleep. And then if they don't have their medication or if they feel not optimistic about their sleep, they're more likely to worry about their sleep and then it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So yeah, there's definitely a big sort of mental piece of this. I wouldn't try to game it out too much because then you're going to double agent yourself, try to you know trick yourself into thinking a certain way. And then you're just really investing too much sleep effort. When it feels like too much, when all else fails, just be like, whew, what would a good sleeper do? Think of one person in your life who's a good sleeper. If they were encountering this insomnia experience right now, what would they do? And then go do that. They'll probably say to themselves, oh, this is weird. I guess it's just a fluke night. I'll go watch more TV. And you say that to yourself and you just keep on keeping on. What is your vibe on prescription medications for sleep or over-the-counter insomnia medications that you can get at like Walgreens? 
I think sometimes the right prescription sleep medication is like a godsend for the right person. There's a really, really good reason why these medications exist. I am not anti-medication for sleep. And there are plenty of patients where I say like, it looks like this is the best thing for you right now. We can absolutely work on the behavioral stuff too. But you know, like you're going through a divorce. Trazodone is like the easiest decision to make right now. Just stay with it. Don't rock the boat. Or like your mother just died. You're grieving. That half a clonazepam that your psychiatrist prescribed years ago for anxiety and you have permission to use it again for sleep, by all means, you can always wean off of sleep medication later if you want to. There's a really good way to use sleep medication to get over temporary humps. I do find that usually people don't want to stay on their medications forever, and their prescribing doctor is usually not willing to write that prescription forever, because then the side effects and the risks start to become more significant as we get older. So often I get patients who are like 64 years old and their doctor is saying, when you turn 65, I'm going to stop writing that Ambien script. So (laughs) do something about it. And then we work on CBTI and then we taper off of that Ambien. Usually doctors and patients don't want to be on a medication long-term and it is very possible to come off of that medication. But the best way to get all messed up with your medication, your relationship with your medication is to play fast and loose with it. Sometimes you take it, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you wake up in the middle of the night and take a rescue dose. No, no, no. That's like way too much mental gymnastics. You're bargaining with yourself. You're like feeling guilty and shameful. Don't do that. Just stick with the prescribed dose, the minimal dose that works for you and take the same dose, same time every night and just stick with it while you work on the the behaviors that are going to improve your sleep. And once those are pretty solid and you feel confident and you've gotten some good sleep under your belt, then you can slowly and gradually and in a pre-planned way, taper off that medication. That's a way more sustainable way to do it. Is there research on if we're actually getting deep sleep, REM sleep, light sleep when we're on these medications? I've heard a lot about like your body is asleep, but your mind is awake. What's happening there? Yeah, there are lots of different medications used for sleep. In fact, most of the medications that are prescribed for sleep are not even actually meant for sleep or FDA approved for sleep. So it's a little bit hard to make a blanket statement, but there are some medications that tend to have, for example, REM suppressing effects. So often when you have an antidepressant medication, that's a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, SSRI, that can sometimes have a REM suppressing effect because for whatever reason, when you decrease somebody's REM, when they have significant depression, decreasing the REM gives them some relief from depression. There are other medications or better yet example, alcohol, if you can call that a medication, often people are self-medicating with alcohol to try to go to sleep. That will actually be more likely to interrupt your deep sleep and keep you in lighter stages and make your body basically work harder throughout the night to metabolize. So that could be deep sleep suppressing. And that, as far as we can tell, does not have any positive benefits. So alcohol might feel like it's like relaxing you and putting you to sleep, but it's generally not actually helping your sleep at all. What about cannabis? I have a ton of friends who use either THC or CBD to help with sleep. 
Yeah, there's a lot of mixed research here. So it looks like the best takeaway for right now is CBD potentially could be helpful at a low dose and at a high dose, not helpful. Whereas THC is generally not helpful. So anecdotally, I've had patients swear by THC as like the only thing that helps, but I wonder if that's maybe through another pathway of alleviating their anxiety or pain or something else like that, that that then leads to better sleep or maybe even a placebo effect. And that would be a very strong placebo effect because THC does make you feel more relaxed. But from the research that we do have, it looks like THC does not directly improve your sleep and could be detrimental. Okay. This has all been so incredibly helpful. I would love if you could just leave us with one homework assignment, one thing we can all do as soon as we turn this podcast off to help us improve our sleep quality tonight. Okay. Here's a good one that is likely to benefit anyone and everyone. Do a body scan. So you don't even have to do like a full-on 30-minute, 45-minute meditation in like a bamboo forest wearing white linens. Just even taking five minutes to be by yourself and walk your attention through your body from toe to head. Start with your pinky toe on your left foot and just wiggle that toe and just really say hi to that toe. If the spirit moves you, you can even say thank you to that toe and, you know, move to the other toes, move up to your feet, like really be slow and intentional and just take your time with this. And don't judge any sensations that you find anywhere in your body, even if it hurts or itches or just like doesn't feel good. Just be curious. Be like, oh, what is that sensation? What color would that sensation be if it had a color? What shape would it be? Is it coming and going? Is it strong? Is it soft? Is it moving? Just be curious and patiently walk your way through your whole body and then move on with your day. Don't they teach people in the military body scans as a way to like fall asleep when they're in combat environments and things like that? Have you heard that? I have heard that. It's really good, not just for sleeping, but for physical and mental health. Just be in touch with your body is a really nice way to be. To be thankful to your body is a really nice way to be. And probably a good side effect of that, a bonus side effect is maybe better sleep. Can you tell us a little bit in your own words about your amazing book and anything else that you want to spotlight? Oh, thank you so much for the opportunity. My book is called Hello Sleep, The Science and Art of Overcoming Insomnia Without Medications. It is all about how to become friends with sleep if you have insomnia. And it's not just metaphors like be nice to sleep. It's very concrete, light therapy, chronotherapy, mindfulness, and just bits and pieces of my own clinical experience from working with tons of patients. And it's really my entry into the sleep self-help canon, which there's a lot of books on this topic. But with this, I'm really hoping to introduce a female voice, a sister who just is like having coffee with you or having a fireside chat with you and telling you the science behind it, but doing it in a way that's very like chill and permission giving and like non-judgmental. Because I feel like sometimes we don't get as much of that reassurance or like flexibility in our medical self-help books. But when it comes to sleep, that's actually key. That permission giving and that relaxation about it is key. So 
hopefully that helps people to feel more reassured and to sleep better. I love that you describe it that way because that's how I describe this podcast, which is like you're going to get the science, but you're going to get it in a way that's fun, in a way that's flexible to your lifestyle, in a way that doesn't feel like it's making your life worse, not better. And I very much think your book does the same thing. Oh, thank you so much. That's a great compliment because that was my number one goal. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all of your amazing knowledge. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much, Liz. This was a true pleasure and I've really enjoyed our conversation. I hope that this episode gave you a new and improved perspective on sleep and lots of tools to help you get the sleep that you want and that you deserve. If you know anyone out there who is struggling with their sleep, please, please send them a link to this episode. Sleep struggles are the worst, and I don't want anyone to go through that any longer than they absolutely have to. If someone shared a link with you and you are new to the podcast, welcome. I am so glad that you're here. Make sure that you are following on whatever platform that you like to listen on. All you have to do is go to the main podcast page. That's the one that lists all of the Liz Moody podcast episodes, and you will see the word follow under the logo on Spotify. And then there's a little follow with a plus sign button on the top right of that same page on Apple Podcasts. This way, you will not miss out on any new episodes. They will appear right in your feed every single Wednesday. And you do not want to miss out because we have some very exciting ones coming up, including an episode about why we have cravings and exactly what to do about them, and another one about the latest science to stop stress in its tracks. And do not forget to go to 100waystochangeyourlife.com to snag a copy of my brand new book through the holidays if you order a copy anywhere and send a receipt to promo at lizmoody.com. I will send you a signed book plate that you can stick in the book and make it an extra special gift. Just send the name of the person that you are gifting the book to and anything specific that you want on the book plate to promo at lizmoody.com. It is so fun to see how many of you are gifting the book this holiday season. It makes me truly so happy and it's the perfect gift for anyone in your life because the categories are so broad and diverse. We have 18 of them. Okay, I love you and I will see you next Wednesday for the next episode of the Liz Moody Podcast. My favorite health hacks are the ones that have the biggest payoffs for the smallest amounts of effort, and this is such a good one. When you are drinking your tea or coffee in the morning, just add one packet or scoop of Great Lakes Wellness Collagen Peptides. I definitely was a bit of a collagen skeptic until I had dermatologist Dr. Whitney Bowe on the podcast. You can scroll back to her Ask the Doctor episode. She said it is not a myth. There is research to support how great collagen is for your skin. And then, of course, I did my own deep dive, and I was so impressed with the known benefits for things like your skin, your hair, and your joint health. Studies show that collagen can help improve your skin's hydration, which is something that I am especially looking for during this time of year when everything just feels a little bit drier. Zach likes the marine collagen, and then I like the grass-fed beef collagen, but both are incredibly well-sourced and certified by third parties, which is the number one thing that I look for. And since I've started incorporating collagen into my everyday routine, I have noticed strong and healthy nails and my hair feels thicker and fuller, which we love. And Zach's knees are feeling so good despite all of the time that he is spending running. One of my favorite things about the Great Lakes Wellness Collagen Peptides is that I cannot taste them at all and they dissolve so well in hot and cold beverages. 
Not all collagen can dissolve in cold beverages, and some days you just want an iced tea. To try out Great Lakes Wellness collagen packets or their bigger tubs, use code LizMoody for 25% off. Yes, 25% off. That is a huge discount off of your first purchase at greatlakeswellness.com. That is LizMoody for 25% off at greatlakeswellness.com.